People are so excited to get out before the sermon. Well, <laughs> you missed your chance. So Romans chapter 3, if you'll turn there in your Bible. Uh, if you're a guest this morning or visiting with us, uh, just so you know, we uh, haven't been going through Romans. We've actually been preaching through the book of Exodus, but as we prepare uh, to come into this Easter season, we're taking a break from Exodus for a few weeks, and we're going to look at some passages in the book of Romans. And so today we're going to look at Romans 3, uh, 21 through 26. If you have been with us as we've been studying through Exodus, hopefully uh, you understand as we've been going through that book, we've talked about the more we learn about Moses, the more we learn about Jesus. Uh, everything we read in the Old Testament is pointing us forward towards the gospel and towards Jesus. And so even as we've been learning about the law, uh, God gives his law there at Mount Sinai to his people and to Moses, the Ten Commandments and other commandments. All those things are pointing us towards the gospel. And so if you haven't been with us, and that sounds a little fuzzy, hopefully it will become clearer as we walk through this passage today. Because Romans 3 is a passage that really is the turning point in the entire book of Romans. Really, I think the turning point in the Bible because it helps us understand how it is we can be right with God. It helps us to see how the law fell short and how righteousness comes through faith in Christ and in Christ alone. And so we're going to look at Romans 3 verses 21 through 26 today. And out of reverence for God's word, if you're able to, if you would stand as I read this for us. And this is God's holy word under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The Apostle Paul writes this down. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. For all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And are justified by His grace as a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus you would pray with me. Father God, we pray that you would help us to understand these words that we've just read. We pray, God, that you would work through your word in our lives today. And Lord, I pray specifically if there's anyone here who's yet to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, who's yet to confess Jesus as Lord, I pray that through the power of your Holy Spirit that you'd bring them to conviction, to repentance, and to faith today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Was some of us are painfully aware uh, today was daylight savings time uh, where we lost an hour. Uh, some of you may realize that this is something that's been going on for quite some time. In fact, that the modern version of daylight savings time that we now have goes back over a hundred years. Uh, it was invented by a man named George Hudson, a scientist in New Zealand. So if you want someone to be upset about over losing that hour, it's George Hudson in New Zealand. Uh, he has long since passed, though. Uh, but many people uh, associate a different name with Daylight Savings Time. Uh, many people uh, associate it with Benjamin Franklin. 
uh, Benjamin Franklin didn't actually invent daylight savings time, but he did write quite a bit and talk a bit uh, about the need for us to rise earlier, uh, for us to make the most of our days, the most of our daylight hours. Uh, he often quoted the old English proverb that some of you are familiar with, early to bed, early to rise, makes a man healthy, wealthy, and wise. And so it was 100 years before Hudson actually proposed what we use now as daylight savings time uh, that Franklin was proposing that people in, in his culture uh, come up with ways to make sure they didn't stay up too late and they got up early. And in fact, there was one letter that he widely distributed in 1784 where he gave some suggestions to encourage people to rise earlier. Uh, among those were a suggestion that people's houses be taxed based on the number of shutters they had on their windows. Uh, he wanted to discourage people from having window shutters so that when the sunlight came in, they would get out of bed. He also proposed that the government's ration candles so that people couldn't stay up late at night by candlelight. And this was my favorite. He proposed that they should wake the public earlier by ringing church bells and firing cannons at sunrise. And so if you have trouble getting the kids up in the morning, I think that might be helpful to fire a cannon off at sunrise. Well, Franklin was basically saying that in order for people to make the most of their day, they needed to be prepared. And those preparations needed to start before sunrise, before the morning hours. Those preparations needed to start days ahead of time, the day before, the night before, sometime days before. And, you know, maybe not with daylight savings time, but there are things that we handle that way. We, we prepare for special days. Uh, for Christmas time, there's often preparations that are going on weeks ahead of time. Gifts that are purchased, parties that are planned, gatherings that are put together. We do that with Thanksgiving, other holidays. We do that with uh, different events in our culture. Uh, we are in the beginning right now of March Madness. And for you who are basketball fans, this is something maybe you've been preparing for. For those who attend games, they've been preparing for a while. They bought their tickets, made reservations a long time ago. They are preparing for a special event. So how does all that relate to us and Romans 3? Well, it relates this way. In just a few weeks, we are going to gather, uh, along with Christians all over the globe, to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We're going to celebrate the empty tomb on that resurrection Sunday, that Easter Sunday. And yet for many of us, the only preparation we will make for that day is getting a special outfit, uh, perhaps having a family get-together, uh, putting together an Easter basket, an Easter egg hunt. We'll, we'll prepare for those things, and that's all well and good. But so many times we don't prepare our hearts to celebrate the resurrection. And so the reason that we're looking at this passage in Romans and we'll look at others is because I want us to prepare ourselves. And not as many in our culture do by thinking of things we can give up or sacrifice. I want us to prepare by preparing our hearts to worship the Lord each and every Sunday. And especially as we come towards that resurrection Sunday. And so we're going to prepare by looking today at Romans 3, verses 21 through 26, where we learn this, among many other things, the first point there in your outline. We learn that the law can never make us righteous. The law can never make us righteous. If you've been with us in our study of Exodus, we've been studying about the giving of the law. It's there at Mount Sinai that God gives the law to His people. Now, even if you haven't been here in our study of Exodus, you probably, you're probably familiar with the Ten Commandments. 
Uh, This is when God gives the Ten Commandments to his people. But in addition to those Ten Commandments, he gives his people all types of laws and commandments and regulations about how they're rightly to worship him and how they're to behave as he's preparing them to enter into the promised land. And so as we've been seeing this giving of the law in the book of Exodus, we've seen the function of the law, the reason that God gives the law. One of those functions, one of those reasons is to restrain evil. And so what God is doing is he's taken his people from living hundreds of years in Egypt, a place where they worship false gods, a place where they did wicked and moral things, and now he's preparing his people to go into the promised land. And as I've said many times, he's not just taking his people out of Egypt, he's taking Egypt out of his people. And he does that through the giving of the law. Because the law restrains them from evil. The law teaches them how to live. The law teaches them what to do and what not to do. Now, the law was helpful for God's people because they were going to be going in among another foreign people. God says as they go into the land of promise, there'll be many pagan nations they encounter. So some of the law protects his people from these other people. So for example, he tells them not to intermarry with these other people because then they're going to intermarry with their false gods and false religions. The law is protecting them from those others. But the law is also protecting them from each other. They needed the law to restrain evil. They needed the law for their protection. This is still very much a function of civil laws today. So, for example, you think about the laws that we have uh, here in our community. Laws regarding, for example, uh, motor vehicles and driving. Uh, Speed limits. Speed limits are given for your protection. If we had no speed limit, there would be some who would drive as fast as they could possibly drive, and they would endanger the lives of others. And so that law is given for your protection and for my protection. As time goes on, additional laws are made as cultures change. And so now, uh, with cell phones and social media, we have laws about not using your cell phone while you're operating a vehicle. This is for your protection and for my protection. I was thinking of that very thing yesterday. I was at Lowe's in Bardstown in the Lowe's parking lot, not typically where we think of as being the most dangerous place in Nelson County, but... As I exited my vehicle and I was walking towards the front doors, fortunately I wasn't on my phone and I was paying attention and I saw this car just barreling through the parking lot. And I thought, well surely they'll slow down because I'm in front of them. But no, they didn't. So I had to step backwards, kind of jump backwards, and as this car went flying past me in the parking lot, I could just see the driver looking down doing this. Well, there's a law against that. And that law is there to protect us. And God in the Old Testament, He gives laws for a very similar reason. He is protecting people from one another. He is using the law to restrain evil. But we also see, as we've seen the giving of the law in Exodus, that the law is there to reveal man's sin. It is through the law that God is showing man his desperate need for redemption. It's through the law that God is showing man his own wickedness, his own wrongdoing. It's through the giving of the law that God gives the standard that points out to men and women and children their sin and their need for a Savior. But there is one thing that we see in the Scripture that the law cannot do and was never meant to do. The law was never meant to save a person by his or her observance to it. 
The law was not given to God's people so that they might perfectly follow the law and therefore be made righteous. You see, the law can't make anyone righteous. And that's the point that Paul has been making in the book of Romans. If you read the book of Romans prior to what we read this morning, chapter 1, verse 1, all the way through chapter 3, verse 20, Paul is making this argument. He is explaining to people that the law cannot make them righteous. He's explaining that the law actually shows them how unrighteous they are. And he's explaining to them their own wickedness and their need for a Savior. And so if you look just a few verses up from where we're at today, look at Romans 3, verses 10 through 12. Here Paul is quoting the psalmist. And in quoting Psalms 14 and 53, he says this, As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And so Paul is making a very clear argument here that, that there's nobody out there who shines among all the people, who is so good on their own and has so much of their own merit that they're considered righteous before a holy God. He says, no, not one is righteous. No, not one. And then he continues there in Romans chapter 3 to say that because of the law, the whole world is now brought to accountability before God. That the law points out to all of us that we are held accountable before God. And yet, no human being, he says in Romans 3.20, will be justified through the law. And so God gives us through the book of Romans some very bad news. If all you had was Romans 1 through 3.20, this is just bad news. It explains how sinful we are, and it explains that there's nothing we can do to save ourselves from our sin. But then notice what we read in today's passage. Romans 3 verse 21 begins with these two words. But now, but now, that this here is a turning point in Paul's argument. One expositor calls this the great turning point in God's dealings with the human race and a turning point in this letter because now Paul is explaining, but we can, we can receive righteousness from God through faith in Christ. Verse 21, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God denotes a right standing with God. And so maybe you don't use that phrase, God's righteousness, so much, but a lot of people use that phrase, being right with God. And so people get near the end of their lives, they'll have these conversations about, I want to be right with God. And maybe you've been in church, maybe you've been talking to someone before, and they've said, are you right with God? That points us towards this biblical truth of what it means to have God's righteousness. To be made right with God. And here he says that that righteousness is available. We can be made right with God. But we can't do it through obedience to the law. And he says the law bears witness to it. Meaning that the law pointed us towards it. That the law showed us how sinful we were. And showed us our need for salvation through Christ. And now something's been manifested, he says. It's been revealed. Verse 22. And how is it revealed? Through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And this is what the law was bearing witness to. St. Augustine famously said it this way, the new is the old concealed and the old is the new revealed. What he meant by that is that the New Testament, 
the, this teaching about God's grace and the gospel. That this was concealed in the Old Testament. The law pointed us towards it, but the law wasn't sufficient to save us. It was pointing us towards something that now in the New Testament is revealed to us. And Augustine there was helping to dispel a common error in his day, perhaps a common error in our day. And the error is this, we tend to look at the Bible sometimes as if God is different in the Old Testament and the New Testament. So you'll hear people refer to, well, you know, I, I, just, I just like the God of the New Testament. You know, He's so gracious and so loving and so kind. Not like that mean, angry God of the Old Testament. And yet as you read the Bible, you see God's character is not changed. Do we see the righteous anger of God in the Old Testament? Absolutely. But friends, we see it in the New Testament as well. And read the book of Revelation. Now read about God's judgment against sin. Look to the early church in the book of Acts. Ananias and Sapphira, two people in the early church who lied to God about how much they gave and God required their life from them. Now look at the righteous anger we see in Christ our Lord as He enters into the temple and sees the abuses there and righteously in anger begins to overturn the tables. And we see God's righteous anger in both. And we see His grace and His love and His goodness in the old just as well as the new. You go out to the garden, what happens there? God creates this perfect dwelling for man. He places Adam and Eve in it. He gives them anything they want. He says, don't eat from this tree. This tree is a reminder to you that I'm God and you're not. That I have full dominion, you don't. You need to obey what I've told you. And what does man do? Adam and Eve eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which God said, the day you eat from it, you will surely die. And yet God didn't physically kill Adam and Eve when they ate from that tree. Now sin entered the picture. There was a consequence. Death would certainly come. But God showed His grace to them. And we see God's grace over and over. My goodness, think about the book of Exodus. Think about how often God's people have turned against Him. Think about how God rescues His people from slavery in Egypt, parts the waters of a sea, walks them through it, provides everything they need, but then in a moment of anxiety and worry when Moses is up a mountain, they melt down gold and make a false idol to worship. And yet God is gracious towards them. God does not change between the Old and New Testament. But we see how God's plan for man is manifested and how it's revealed. And we see this good news of the gospel that it's available through faith in Jesus Christ alone. This is the good news. And yet, here's the problem. As much as we talk about how our salvation is through Christ and Christ alone, and as much as we talk about how the law cannot save us, we still have something within us, this gravitational pull towards works and despite the good news of the gospel that that you can be saved today through faith in jesus and jesus alone despite that great good news so often we still want to rely on good works and achieving our own merit i've been to far too many funerals in this community and in other communities where I've stood there talking to family members, loved ones, friends, family, neighbors. And many times of someone who is a, a faithful believer, a faithful Christian, a faithful member of this or another church, only to hear someone say, well, they were such a good person. If anyone deserves heaven, it was them. Friends, do you understand when we say that what we're saying? 
where we're saying that someone is earning merit before God. Where we're saying that based on their good works, they deserve to be made righteous in the eyes of God. And yet the Scripture says the exact opposite of that. The Scripture said to us, none is righteous, no, not one. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And so here's the predicament we're in. So many of us would say, well, yeah, I understand. I understand the gospel. I understand I need to put my faith in Christ. But, but surely I need to good, do good things also. But friends, if, if you're trusting in good works, if you're trusting in your own abilities, then you're not trusting in Jesus Christ alone. And if you're not trusting in Jesus Christ alone, then you're not trusting in Jesus Christ at all. If there's an ounce within you that believes that you're going to stand before God one day and based on something you've done, you've said, some act of charity that you've done, if you think in any way God's going to look to you and say, oh yes, when you did that, when you said that, when you gave that, man, that really got my attention. That, that really turned my head. You're such a good person. If anybody deserves to get in here, it's you. Friends, if you're holding on to that at all, then you're not trusting in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Then you're not believing in what we read in this text where we read that the Lord God is the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus and faith in Jesus alone. The predicament we are in today is so many of us, even knowing these truths, we're still holding on desperately to our own abilities, thinking we can save ourselves. Great preacher Charles Spurgeon told a story along these lines once about a preacher who went to call on a poor woman in his congregation. Of course, this was long ago, and in this context, he had a a poor woman in his congregation that she couldn't afford to pay her rent, she couldn't afford to pay her bills, she couldn't afford uh, food to eat, and so this preacher had taken up a collection in the church, he he had walked to the part of town she lived in, he had found her apartment, he went that day and knocked on her door so he could give her this provision, provision she desperately needed. He knocked and no one answered. He stood for a while, he knocked again, still no answer. He knocked again and again and again, still no answer. Finally, he left with that provision still in his hands. Later in that week, he was there at the church and he encountered this woman and he began to share with her. I called at your room the other day, but you're not, you were not at home. What time did you call, sir, she asked. About noon. Well, oh dear, she answered. I was at home and I heard you knocking But I did not answer. I thought it was the man calling for the rent. (laughs) Do you see the situation there? So she was so focused on trying to fix her problem, realizing she couldn't fix her problem, that the answer to her problem was right on the other side of that door. But she refused to answer it. Why? Because she wasn't looking to someone else to save her. She was looking to herself. Now here's how that relates to us today. Most of us in this room aren't struggling to pay our rents. And most of us in this room, compared to the rest of the world, we're not struggling financially at all. And most of us feel fairly independent 
Even in times of financial pressure, financial strain, not knowing what the future holds, many of us, our immediate response is to look to, what can I do to fix this? And if we're not careful, that self-reliance, that independence, it then carries over into our understanding of the gospel. And we begin to think, oh, I need to put faith in Christ, but surely I need to do something also. Friends, the gospel tells us that works do not save Now, salvation should produce works, but our works do not save us. And so in order to respond to the good news of the gospel, we first need to understand the bad news that we can't save ourselves. And that's where Paul goes here, that next point in your notes. Point two, the law reveals our unrighteousness. Paul writes there in verse 22, that there's no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so Paul kind of wipes the slate here and says, listen, it doesn't matter where you were born. It doesn't matter what part of this globe you were born on. It doesn't matter what language you speak. It doesn't matter what family you come from. It doesn't matter what religion you were born into. It doesn't matter what religion your parents were born into. It doesn't matter how many times you've been to church. It doesn't matter how many times you've done religious things. There's no distinction, he says. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now here's the thing about sin. When we talk about sin so often, we immediately in our minds, we gravitate towards one or two things. You know, this is a sin. This is a sin. And oftentimes how we gauge ourselves in in regards to sin is we look around at other people. And so it's easy to watch the evening news and feel pretty good about ourselves. I mean, if you watch the evening news and you feel bad about yourself, you're pretty messed up. It's easy for us to read the paper and and see the headlines and see people in our culture whose wickedness and depravity is on display in front of everyone who do such wicked things we don't even want to hear about them or have our kids hear about them. It's easy to look at that and sit back and think, I'm doing pretty well. See, when we look horizontally to judge sin and discern sin, we we can feel better. So here's an exercise. Look around right now. Just do it. Look look around at people. Now here's what's going on. Some of the people you're looking at, you're thinking, I'm doing a lot better than they are. You won't admit it, but that's how I'm looking at y'all right now. And as we're doing that and looking at someone else and saying, well, I'm not as bad as they are, guess what's going through their mind? (laughs) They're looking at us. You're looking at me. (laughs) And we're thinking the same thing. Because when we judge sin horizontally based on other people, well, that standard is kind of skewed, isn't it? So what does Paul do here? He he takes this, this standard we judge sin by and he turns it. And now the standard is God and His righteousness. Now here's a question. Even if you don't know a lot about the Bible this morning, even if you haven't read a lot about it, how many of you woke up this morning and you thought, you know what? I think I'm more righteous than God today. Now how many of you go to bed at night and think, you know, I had a pretty good day. You know, as I think about it, I was perfect today. 
You know, come to think about it, I had a pretty perfect week last week. In fact, you know what, 2018, we'll call it the year of perfection. No, we, we know in our hearts, when you turn that this way, when we compare ourselves to the holiness of God, His righteous standard, well, then we begin to absorb a bit of what Paul is saying here. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, here's the kicker. <laughs> we get into the New Testament and to the Gospels, and so often we, can, we consider Jesus and we think, well, you know, Jesus kind of did away with the law, that the law just condemned us, Jesus was so gracious. No, that's not what happened. In fact, listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 5.17. Do not think I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I've come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. What does that mean? Well, then Jesus goes on in Matthew chapter 5 to share about various laws of the Old Testament. And then what He does is He actually increases the burden of the law. I'll give you an example. Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. Jesus says, You've heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not murder. And everyone who murders will be liable to judgment. Now this is one of those standards that we kind of universally understand. As I've shared before, I've had conversations with lots of people about the gospel. And often in my gospel conversations, just to find out what someone's trusting in, where they're coming from, I'll ask a question something like this. Hey, if your life were to expire today, and you stood before a holy God... And he said, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say to him? And more often than not, the answer people give is based on works. And for whatever reason, more often than not, someone will say something along the lines of, well, I know I haven't been perfect, but I've never killed anyone. Comforting to know. <laughs> so, so we have this standard in the Ten Commandments, do not murder. And so a lot of us look at that and say, well, I, you know, I hadn't murdered anybody. I'm doing pretty good. Jesus in Matthew 5 says, you've heard that it was said of those on old, you shall not murder, and everyone who murders will be liable of judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Uh-oh. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. See what Jesus is saying here? Let me just flesh this out with you for a second. A couple months ago, my daughter Vivian and I were in Bardstown. Had to run an errand and go to the bank. And so we're driving along 245, right about where Dairy Queen is. And you may have had this experience where you, you come to a stoplight and you look in your rear view mirror, and a person's so close to you, you, you think they're in your back seat. And so I look, and I can see not only is someone desperately close to me, they're not very happy. They're upset. They are enraged. I, you know, at this point, I'm thinking, I, it's good, I can't read lips, because I probably don't want to know what they're saying, but this person behind me is just angry and upset. And as I'm trying to figure out what's going on, about that moment, they, they just zoom out from behind me and they get right on the tail of the person beside me and now I can look over and see them and I can see, well now they're mad at that person too you know, it wasn't just me well then we're sitting there and there's about, you know, maybe three or four feet from the front of my bumper to the back of the person's bumper in front of me and somehow they managed to cut me off and get right there in front of me and now they're yelling at the person in front of them yelling at the person beside them and I'm pretty sure they're yelling at me too 
course, I'm sitting there singing Amazing Grace. <laughs> Turn to Vivian. Yeah, Vivian, it's a great time to pray for this person. Maybe we can give my Easter invitation or something. No. I'm mad. I'm frustrated. And so as we're continuing forward, I begin to think, this person's out of their gourd. They're rolling in the window. They're yelling at people. People are yelling back at them. I'm like, I can't wait to turn into the bank parking lot, get away from this person. Well, guess who turns into the bank parking lot? And so then I decide there's a lesson to be learned here. So I tell, turn to Vivian. I say, Vivian, what you're witnessing now is the definition of a fool. Now, the Bible does talk about fools. And I probably could have made a biblical argument that they were a biblical fool. But that's not what I was doing. I was restraining other words I wanted to say. I was getting angry. I was getting frustrated. I wasn't thinking about their soul. I wasn't thinking about inviting them to church. I was thinking, this truck is old and paid for. I could just bump into them a little bit. Fool. If I had looked over beside me at that point and seen a sign displaying the Ten Commandments in someone's yard, I don't think I would have felt a bit of conviction. I probably would have thought, well, I haven't killed them. I'm doing pretty good. But I open up Matthew 5. And Jesus says, I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. What Jesus does is He takes that standard of the law and that burden of the law And He overwhelms us with it. And He shows us that on the days when we thought we were doing pretty good, no, we weren't. Now, maybe you're sitting here today and you're thinking, well, I would never call anybody a fool. Maybe it was you cutting me off. I don't know. but... But it's easy for us to look at that again horizontally and think, well, that's not my struggle. That's not my issue. I'm better than that. So Paul helps us out. Romans 1, 29-33, Paul starts to describe the fruits of unrighteousness. Maybe you struggle with one of these. Have you ever coveted? Have you ever seen something someone else had and for a moment thought, I, I want that? Have you ever envied? Have you ever deceived? Have you ever participated in gossip, not just saying it, but just listening to it? Have you ever participated in slander? Maybe not saying it, but listening to it. Have you ever boasted in yourself and been prideful about something you did? And here's one I'm sure nobody's ever done. Have you ever disobeyed your parents? Romans 1.32, in reference to those things I just said, says, those who practice such things deserve to die. Romans 6.23 says, The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is the eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So what Paul's saying here is he overwhelms us. What Jesus is saying is he overwhelms us with the bad news of our sin. As he's saying, what, what we deserve for our sin is we deserve eternal death. 
what it took Jesus moments on the cross to atone for and pay for, it will take you and I an eternity in hell to pay for. And he says that's exactly what we deserve. See, the law can't save us from this. The law can't make us righteous. The law can only reveal our unrighteousness. The law can't make us right with God. But the good news of the gospel is Jesus can. And that's our third point there today. Righteousness comes through faith in Jesus Christ. And I want you to write in another word there. Alone. It comes through faith in Jesus Christ alone. Martin Luther, the great reformer, when he was translating the book of Romans, he actually put into his translation where it talks about faith in Jesus, he put in faith alone. Sola fide, this great confession of the reformers. It's not enough to say, well, yeah, of course we need faith in Jesus, but we also need to work too. No, we need faith in Christ and faith alone. That is the only way we can ever have righteousness and be made right with God. Verses 24 through 26, there, there's so much here we don't have time to cover today. It, it is a rich passage. Verse 24 speaks about all who are justified. It speaks of justification to, to be declared not guilty by God. How does this happen? By His grace. And that's a word we can spend hours talking about. The unmerited favor of God. As a gift... We can't earn it. We don't deserve it. We didn't buy it. It's given freely to us by God. Through redemption that is in Christ Jesus. That, that's a term, hopefully if you've been with us in our study of Exodus, you recognize back at the Passover lamb was the redemption of the children of Israel. It was the price paid for them. Verse 25, propitiation. Another word rich with meaning. It means that Jesus' blood has satisfied the wrath of God. His death on the cross paid the penalty of man's sin. It satisfies the debt that was owed for all who would receive this gift by faith. And all this is done, verse 25, by God's righteousness. See, God's righteous, God's just. God doesn't simply forget sin. God doesn't just wipe a slate clean. In fact, the Scripture tells us, God says very specifically, that He'll not leave the guilty unpunished. And so it is a righteous thing that He does. Verse 25, that He passed over former sins. It doesn't mean He ignored them or He forgot about them, but He held back His wrath until the cross of Jesus. That that debt would be paid in full. All this speaks of the justice of God. The wages of sin is death. Someone has to die. It's either you and me or it's Jesus. But Paul tells us if our faith is in Jesus, we can have eternal life. And how does this happen? Verse 24, go back to that. By His grace as a gift. And so as we come to the end of this time today, I just want to leave you with this. I want you to consider that word grace. I want you to consider what it means to respond to the grace of God. And Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, there's no more wonderful word than grace. It means unmerited favor or kindness shown to one who is utterly undeserving. It is not merely a free gift, but a free gift to those who deserve the exact opposite. 
And it is given to us while we are without hope and without God in the world. Friends, do you know this grace? Have you responded to this grace? A grace that we're about to sing about? A grace that we call amazing. Some of you are very familiar with the song we're about to sing, Amazing Grace. It was written by John Newton. As many of you know, Newton was an English clergyman who lived in the mid to late 1700s, died in the early 1800s. Some of you know parts of this story, but just that we might better understand the lyrics of this song, I'd like to tell you a bit of his story before we go this morning. You see, Newton, in the mid-1700s, was raised in a Christian home. He had a Christian mother at the age of four and five years old. His Christian mother was teaching him the Bible. as She was having her young son memorize the Scripture. But then at the age of six, tragedy struck and his mother died suddenly. And like many in Newton's day, he was sent to live with a relative. And sadly for Newton, the relative he was sent to live with was someone who mocked Christianity, who hated the gospel, who hated the word of God. And they spread this mockery onto Newton every opportunity they had. It was a wicked home. And so one day at an early age, as soon as he could, Newton ran away from that home. He joined the British Navy and became an apprentice seaman. He did not pursue a life of righteousness at sea. He pursued a life of wickedness. In fact, he became rather known for his wickedness. It was said that he had a reputation of being able to swear for two hours without repeating himself. He was a wicked man, and so he eventually deserted from the Navy off the coast of Africa. Later, people would ask him, why Africa? And he said this, that he went to Africa for one reason and one reason only. That was that I might send my fill. But it was there in Africa that he fell in with a Portuguese slave trader who actually ended up enslaving Newton and kept him along with many others as servants. He treated him poorly, but not as poorly as his wife. Often this slave trader would be gone on expeditions, and so he left his servants uh, to be seen over by his wife. His wife was an African woman who hated white men, and she took it out on Newton every opportunity she had. He would later write that for months he was forced to grovel in the dirt, eating his food from the ground like a dog, beaten unmercifully if he touched it with his hands, and for a time was actually placed in chains. He was starving to death, and so at one moment when his hands were so uh, thinned out and he had lost so much weight, he was actually able to pry himself loose for the chains, and he escaped from this slave trader's wife. He made his way through the jungles of Africa. He ended up on the coast, and there he encountered a British merchant ship making its way up the coast of England, or on its way to the coast of England. And so the captain took Newton on board. He soon realized that Newton had a lot of abilities at sea, and so he put him in charge of many things. But Newton still did not pursue a life of righteousness by any means. And one day while they were at port and the captain was there on the land, Newton decided to break open the ship's rum and get everyone, including himself, wickedly drunk. When the captain returned to find the men drunk, they found out that Newton was the one who led in this wickedness. And so he took Newton, he beat him severely, he struck him in the head, and he threw him over the boat to drown. And here in this hopeless situation, where left to himself, Newton would have drowned and died and we would never have amazing grace. And one of the other sailors on the ship reached in 
and snatched him from the sea and brought him back on board. At that point, they continued in their voyage, but more bad luck would come upon the ship. They would go into a great storm. They'd be thrown off course. The, the storm would begin to bring water onto the ship. And so Newton was sent down into the hold of the ship to pump the water out. And for days, he was in that ship's hold, pumping water out, convinced and certain that he would surely die. And it was in those days that the God who Newton had long since forgotten about showed him that he had not forgotten about him. And here this wicked man, still hung over, still scarred from the beatings he'd received, pumping this water out of a ship that he was sure would sink. Here this man began to recall verses his mother taught him when he was four and five and six years old. Verses about the righteousness of God. Verses about the wickedness of man. Verses about the grace of God. And it was there that Newton considered the plight of his own soul. And he turned in repentance and faith and was born again. He placed his faith in Christ there in that desperate situation. And as God's sovereign hand would have it, within days the, the water began to, the water level went down, the ship survived. And as soon as they got to land, Newton left that ship, studied theology, and became a distinguished evangelist and preacher, even preaching before the queen. He would go on to write the song that we're about to sing, Amazing Grace, and I thought it might be helpful to know his story in order to better understand what he wrote. Here was a man who truly understood the wickedness of his own heart. He understood the bad news. So then he could write this about the good news. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found. Was blind, but now I see. T'was grace that taught my heart to fear and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear. The hour I first believed. Through many dangers, toils, and snares I have already come. Tis grace has brought me safe thus far. And grace will lead me home. Friends, do you know this grace today? Have you responded to this offer of grace today? If not, my prayer as we sing this song is that you would indeed respond as we offer this time of invitation. If you would stand together as I pray for us. Father, as we sing about the amazing grace that is offered through faith in Christ and Christ alone, I pray, Lord, if any is yet to put their faith in Jesus, that today they would. Father, I pray for those who have, that you might burden our hearts for others in our life who don't know this grace that we might pray for them, that you would empower us through your Holy Spirit to share the gospel with them. And so, Father, we pray for this time of response. In Jesus' name, amen.